0: Welcome to the Rutgers Oral History Archives podcast. The Rutgers Oral History Archives, ROHA for short, is dedicated to documenting the life stories of people and communities throughout Rutgers University and New Jersey. ROHA makes those oral history interviews available to the public on our digital archive found at oralhistory.rutgers.edu. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts at, at sign RU Oral History. I'm your host, Kate Rizzi. In today's podcast, I'm joined by a special guest, Pamela Walker. Pamela is a doctoral candidate in the history department at Rutgers University. She's specializing in African-American history and women and gender history. Pamela is the recipient of the PEO Scholar Award Fellowship given by the International Chapter of the PEO Sisterhood and the John Hope Franklin Dissertation Fellowship of the American Philosophical Society. She was the fellow at the Center for Women's History at the New York Historical Society. In 2019, Pamela was the Medgar and Murley Evers Research Scholar at the Mississippi Department of Archives and History in the Medgar and Murley Evers Institute. Prior to that, she was a graduate fellow in the Rutgers Center for Historical Analysis Seminar on Black Bodies. Her publications include numerous articles that can be found online at Women at the Center, the blog of the Center for Women's History at the New York Historical Society, as well as four chapters in the Scarlet and Black series. Scarlet and Black is a three-volume exploration of Indigenous people and people of color in Rutgers history. In 2018, Pamela was the first recipient of the John W. Chambers Oral History Graduate Student Fellowship. As a Chambers Fellow, she traveled to the Mississippi Delta and interviewed Black women as a part of her examination of rural motherhood Activism, poverty, and political consciousness in 1960s era social movements. Pamela, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation.
0: It's 2020, so I've got to ask, how are you doing? I am doing okay. You know, I am, you know,
1: doing well, I have my health. Um, my family's doing well um, and so yeah I, i'll be I'll be really happy when this strange time is over but you know I appreciate the kind of uh the way that it's forced me to slow down a little bit and um, you know think through self-care for myself so yeah, uh, but I do look forward to the next year and I'm ready to get out of the house. <laughs>
0: Today, we're going to talk about your scholarship, but first, I want to find a little bit more out about you. Where did you grow up, and what is your educational background?
1: So I grew up, I claim two places as home. So I grew up in Tennessee, um, but I really claim Mississippi as my home. My Both of my parents grew up in Sunflower County, Mississippi, um, as the site for you know, these major battles for civil rights is the home of Fannie Lou Hamer. It's the home of, you know, her rival James Eastland. And so um, I grew up in this very uh, uh, kind of cognizant space around social movements, civil rights, and um, kind of what voting meant to Black communities and Black families and my family in particular. So while I only spent Maybe a few years up to the third grade, in, in Mississippi, it's always been a part of my like personal biography, and it's always been this place that you know we went to for holidays, and it's become this this kind of focal uh, focal point for my research. Um, and so it's it's been special to be connected to to my personal history um, through through my research in this way. Um, my educational background, I went to the University of Tennessee for undergrad. Um, after that, I taught high school for a couple of years. And then I did a, a master's program at the University of New Orleans before coming to Rutgers.
0: What brought you to Rutgers University?
1: You know, I did this, this my MA in New Orleans, really for a couple of reasons. I knew that I loved history and and New Orleans has this, vibrant um, historical, it's a vibrant historical city. But I was working on my, what is now my my dissertation project and it was my MA thesis, studying black women during the civil rights movement. And I went to a conference actually during my first year or second year of my MA program, the Association for the Study of Life and History, African-American Life and History, ASALA in Memphis, Tennessee. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to get a PhD, I I kind of doubted myself, but I went to a luncheon with the Association of Black Women Historians, and I sat in the room with all of these amazing Black women historians. I even met um, a PhD student or newly minted PhD who went to Rutgers and I was, you know, telling her about my project and telling her about you know, what I think I want to do and how I was like worried about applying to particular schools because I didn't think I'd get in. And she just gave me the rundown. She was like, your project sounds great. And she's like, you know, apply to the best. Apply to the best schools. Um, And, you know, Rutgers is one of the best and you want to work with, you know, Deborah Gray White (laughs) and Mia Bay and the amazing black women scholars. And it was really kind of being at this conference seeing black women scholars in the flesh and talking to other black women scholars that encouraged me to apply to the best schools. And I got in and I decided to come to Rutgers because I knew that not only would I have models of, you know, excellence in the history profession, but I also knew that I would be surrounded by colleagues and other phd students who looked like me who had similar experiences who I would be able to you know discuss my project without it being you know something so out of off the wall or so different like we there was a community of folks doing african american history and that was really important to me as i you know started my career
0: so let's talk about your scholarship and your research what is the BOX project and how did you become interested in studying this topic?
1: I'll just say first, I discovered the BOX project uh, in a conversation with my grandmother. She she uh, lived in Mississippi. She just passed away earlier this year. Um, but when I was starting my MA project uh, in 2013, my grandmother had on um, an apron made of like kind of cut out pieces of fabric. And I asked my grandmother, like, where did you get this apron from? And she was like, I made it with scraps from um the box that my box lady sent me. And I was like, who's what is your box lady? Like, what is that about? Well it turns out that her box lady was this, you know, 85 year old woman who lived in Connecticut. Um, an older white woman and they exchanged letters. They have been writing for 30 years at this point, 30, maybe 40 years at this point. I wanted to know more about what this box project was. And so around this time, um, I'm looking for my MA thesis project and I discover the archive had been uh, delivered uh, or uh, donated to a small college in Mississippi and so I had to find out more. So I went and did research and I discovered that the Box Project was this organization, um, this grassroots project that was founded by this uh, Vermont pacifist um, named Virginia Knave in Vermont. And she wanted to create opportunities for white New England women in the Northeast to connect with rural black women and support the, the freedom movement in Mississippi this project was kind of snowballed based off kind of word of mouth between these women's networks in New England and these women's networks in Mississippi. And it was a way for, yeah, these women to support the movement with goods, with clothing, with food, um, and for and, and also provided information about the freedom movement um, to rural black women in Mississippi that they couldn't get or that was difficult for them to get and everyday conversations with with people in their community, and so through this project, I'm able to see how ordinary women participate in social movements. My project is not so much concerned with naming activists or saying, you know, these women are, you know, activist mothers, or these women are um, definitive participants in the civil rights movement. I think for me, I'm more um, curious about how ordinary people engage on top of their other obligations. And so for rural black women in Mississippi, who you know, were sharecropping or working on farms or working as domestics, who also had to put their children through school, were living in these really rural isolated communities. These women who knew about the civil rights movement and, and kind of were attempting to engage when they could, but maybe didn't always have transportation, this they they participated and engaged when they could, and their letters tell the story about navigating everything that was happening at that time. Getting a ride to go register, putting their kids through school, encountering, um, you know, recalcitrant like racist people at the post office who didn't want them to have survival goods that were being shipped to people from out of state. It covers how Black women are navigating you know, welfare and all these things at the same time as the civil rights movement. And it tells that additional story, um, a more complete story about ordinary people. Similarly, in the way that it tells about just how ordinary um, sympathizers outside of the South, these, you know, kind of volunteer moms uh, in New England, how they were organizing within their own local communities and in their churches to support the movement, because they um, we're kind of operating within the gender norms at the time that, you know, women who were mothers and women at their age didn't travel to the South to go demonstrate. So I'm telling this whole story about just ordinary women and how they engage in movements.
0: In 2018, you were the John W. Chambers Oral History Graduate Fellow. A little bit of background, John Y Clay Chambers II is a professor emeritus of history at Rutgers University. For many years, Professor Chambers taught oral history classes that were associated with the Rutgers Oral History Archives. He's always been a steward of ROHA and has encouraged many students over the years to incorporate oral history into their work. In 2018, the John Chambers Oral History Graduate Fellowship was established to foster the use of oral history and scholarship for graduate students in history. The fellowship is supported by the Ware and Cobb Foundations and through gifts made by donors, including Professor Chambers himself. As the inaugural Chambers Fellow, what research did the fellowship enable you to pursue? So I was thrilled
1: and very fortunate to receive the funding to do oral history research in the Mississippi Delta. This was work that I wasn't sure that I'd be able to do initially when I started the project. Um, I wasn't sure first if I'd be able to really find anyone to talk to and how I would go about finding folks. I had done a lot of kind of Facebook searches and things like that. And I'd stumbled upon the founders of the Box Project's daughter. And that gave me some information um, about, about the founding of the project, about the family network. Um, and about Virginia Knave's background, but I really wanted to, to go interview black women who had been res- on the uh, recipient end of the box project and to get a sense about how they, um, how they uh, viewed the project, but also just really get a sense of their daily life during the movement. And so the Chambers Fellowship allowed me to go do that work, to travel from New Jersey to the Mississippi Delta in two weeks, um, interviewing
0: um, eight women. You approached the process of finding interview participants with a rather unique strategy. What was your process? How did you find the women that you ended up interviewing?
1: Yeah. So, like I said, I I was not totally sure how to locate these women. I knew that you know if they were anything like my grandmother. You know, they probably didn't have a Facebook page or they, you know, weren't that savvy on the computer. But I know that one thing um, these women did is they read the newspaper. And so I decided to put ads in um, newspapers across the Mississippi Delta. Um, many of them are predominantly have a black readership, but I even put them in kind of the major newspapers Um one major newspaper in Jackson, Mississippi, which is a little outside the Delta, and three um, and three and and newspapers in the Mississippi Delta, and I really just <laughs> the question that I posed was, "What do you know about the Mississippi Box Project?" And I put my phone number and my email, and really shockingly, people called me back, um, and I got a couple emails back of people telling me that, you know, either they, their mother was a participant or they were participants and that they would speak with me. Um, I'm still kind of blown away by it because, you know, I just, I put them in like the classified section. Um, I, I was very shocked that I believe about 15 women contacted me and I ultimately ended up doing eight interviews. Um, but still the, what I was able to acquire from these women was more than I would have Um, been able to do without them. Um, And they kind of filled in particular uh, parts of, of my dissertation that, you know, I wasn't able to get from their letters alone.
0: What previous experiences prepared you for your work as a historian and especially as an oral historian?
1: So I've done uh, a number of projects uh, through Rutgers um, with Dr. Kristen obrazil Coffin, um, and so that was a really great starting point to think through how to um, how to how to ask uh, people that you are unfamiliar with tough questions. Um, I think, and maybe questions that that may be uncomfortable answering uh, to strangers. I think another thing that's taught me um, I'll say when I did my my um m a program, I studied on a professor named Connie X Atkinson, and she t- she gave us a whole entire kind of class on oral history, and she said, you know really you you really have to be patient and you have to um not ask leading questions and just be patient and not necessarily try to pin down specific details. People may not remember a date or, you know, if it was raining or sunny that day, but they remember how they feel. And I think that has stuck with me when I do oral histories, when I'm thinking about any any aspect of my work and how I'm writing about it. um, I think when it comes to like pushing someone or nailing them our particular details, it may not be about nailing down that detail, but getting getting the kind of the essence of a particular moment right. Um, and that's kind of how i I went through the interview process um. Because I remember going through and trying to kind of get specific information about, well, who was your box lady? Or what was that experience like? Or did you like her? What was it? And can you tell me, um, you know, what year it was that you started receiving boxes? You know, this happened over 50 years ago for many people. So getting that information was really difficult. And I think once I, I just kind of did, like, tell me you know, tell me about your experiences growing up as a young Black child during sharecropping and just being quiet <laughs> and letting my sources tell the story. Because I soon realized through my process of of doing this oral history that actually, you know, some of the, the sticky strategic memories about the box project weren't as fresh. And it kind of supports my argument in many ways that like, The Box Project was really just one piece of these women's stories among so many things. So that like getting a specific detail about this nuanced thing that I need to answer for myself wasn't going to be incredibly helpful. But for me, a lot of the information that I got about these women um, was what it was like to grow up during Jim Crow. I mean, some of the stories of their childhoods was were incredible and stories that I hadn't hadn't heard yet. Um and hadn't heard before in some of the scholarship. And so I think once I stopped like really trying to get these specific answers about X, Y, and Z and letting these women tell their stories and kind of fill in these stories about their earlier life rather than specifically pinpointing the thing that I thought I was coming there to interview interview them for. Um I think, you know, the experience became a lot more fruitful and beneficial to me and for the, the, the dissertation
0: as a whole. Over the course of 2020, many interviews have taken place through video conferencing, like we're doing right now. Mm -hmm. You actually got to travel to the Mississippi Delta and do face-to-face interviews. What was that experience like for you? Um... It was, you know, in many ways, it was like
1: incredibly humbling because, you know, these women did not know me um, and they invited me into their homes, you know, with with my recorder and they told their stories. And I think, you know, I think there's there's something about being able to to go into someone's house. I mean, most of the women hugged me when they met me. They sat me in their homes. One woman, her name was Minnie. She actually taught my dad in the third grade, which I found out over the course of our interview. Um, But, you know, I was able to come into her house and she had, she of all all the women I think had a a sense of like like, I'm getting ready to like share this community history so I walked in she she had her photo albums out she had like her programs um, from uh her 80 her 85th birthday all on display for me um and I think that that added a layer I was able to take images and pictures of her when she was her ninth grade uh school photo all the way up to when she became a teacher and so I think the experience of being in someone's home, um, the kind of I don't know, the the feeling connection that you get from being in someone's presence is different and really special. And I think in the and kind of writing the lecture, um, and kind of thinking about meeting these women and being able to to give a presentation, not just of like the story that they told, but like of their personalities. I was able to do that in many ways because I was in their house, like with them, looking at their images. Not to say that you're not able to get a sense of someone's personality but over Zoom, but there is a different level of connection um, that I was able to have sitting on someone's couch um, and being there with them and looking at their photo albums together.
0: Oral history is a way to elicit new perspectives, to add to the historical record what's been left out. Through doing the interviews, what was uncovered that you think is understudied or left out of the traditional historical narratives?
1: Well, so I I discovered so much from these women. And at first I was I I was like, you know, is this as I was saying earlier in the question about kind of doing oral history and being patient and letting your sources kind of tell their story? Um, yeah, I think initially I was like, oh, how am I going to fit this here? Or where does this actually go in my dissertation? A number of the conversations revealed, you know, some of my, some of the things that were tricky for me was like, well, the reason why I'm like having trouble is because like, I, I actually need more scholarship about this thing. So for example, I was having a conversation with one woman, her name was Jody, and we were talking about her family and their life on the farm. And she was a farmer in the 30s, which was around that time a kind of high, or kind of a, the beginning of the decline of the sharecropping uh, period. Um, but she never describes herself as a sharecropper and there are multiple categories of, of sharecropping and, and tenant farming and all, these, all of these different labor categories. And many of the women that I interviewed worked the land in some way, whether they worked for someone. But I learned that a lot of the categories that we use, or we just kind of blanket label things, sharecropping or tenant farming or day labor, they actually don't fit within this dying system. So we knew that so many people were becoming less and less frequent sharecroppers, but what was their labor category after that? This woman was decidedly not a sharecropper. A lot of the other women were decidedly not sharecroppers and yet we don't actually articulate the type of labor that they're doing on these farms um, properly. We're still calling it and labeling it by these old titles that were from a, a kind of earlier era. And so a lot of folks who are working the land, I think for me, I was trying to kind of understand what type of labor was taking place in rural Mississippi in nineteen, between 1940 and 1970. And what I realized is like, we actually need more scholarship on this to truly understand within a dying system um, of sharecropping while people are still living on plantations, they're still working on land, they're still kind of subjected to um, cruelty from the people who own the plantation, Um, but it's not quite sharecropping. So That's one thing that was incredibly insightful to me as I think about you know, the women in my project who are working on plantations, who are doing a lot of labor, um, what type of work they're actually doing and what type of communities they're navigating. I think we still need to know more about. I think another thing um, for me has been kind of thinking through women's networks on the ground. So in a lot of civil rights scholarship, as I was mentioning earlier, we kind of put the people who participate in movements and categories. They are either like front lines activists, grassroots activists doing a lot of the organizing. Um, they're activist mothers, those people who have been identified as activists. Um, But then there are so many other people on the ground who are going to the post office, who are participating in um, Head Start programs, which in many ways was like an extension of the civil rights for many women. How do we understand the worlds and the networks that they're uh, navigating? And so even just some of my conversations with women like Shirley or Al Bader or these women, who were all connected to Head Start and who um, were not necessarily Head Start teachers, but they found out about registering to vote from their children's Head Start teacher. And they got rides from their kids' Head Start teacher to go vote. I think those are really important stories to to understand how ordinary people were within these massive networks uh, of, activism but also everyday life um one woman you know knew fannie lou hamer's daughter her kids went to the same school she also knew other major local activists Z. moore they went to church together um and so it's not like these people were unaware they were just simply navigating just a myriad of 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 issues within their daily lives but um connected to the movement in a number of ways and um, uh, through their participation by registering and I think you know the oral histories that gave me another layer of telling telling the story of ordinary people.
0: Not to be a spoiler for your dissertation findings, but through doing the interviews and through doing archival research, what are some of the big picture conclusions that you've drawn about the box project? And race and gender and political participation?
1: One of my main things is we need to pay attention to the ordinary. We need to pay attention to the everyday quotidian experience of, of, of women, rural black women in Mississippi and women in New England, white women in New England who were interested in supporting the movement. I think rightfully so the scholarship has thought through the work of organizers. But if we don't understand the sacrifices that ordinary people or the masses made too to, to show up under considerable considerable threats of violence or being thrown off the, the, place, the plantations where they lived and worked, especially for these folks in Mississippi, um, we really won't understand the kind of the maneuverings that these organizers had to make to gain the trust of local people. Organizers had to earn the trust of local people to to have them get in their car and drive down to the courthouse, because they were the people after the organizers left, and after a lot of the activists left Mississippi, who would have to continue to deal with the the, the political and the power structure still at play in these places. And so I think paying attention to ordinary people is is and and the ways in which you know movements happen. In conjunction with uh, everyday life, and that child care needs don't stop when the movement happens, that work doesn't stop when the movement happens, that health care problems and health issues don't stop when movements come to town, I think is is one kind of central focus, particularly and um, the the aspect of my projects that focus in Mississippi like that we have to pay attention to to understand how, most people engage in in social movements.
0: What do you think is the role of historians during present day movements of social justice? When we study social movements
1: that are comprised of individuals who understand and choose to use their power, we can learn from those folks on how to use our power to make and expand democracy. Um, for all people. So I think the role of historians is to historicize and contextualize our present moment. Um, I think, you know, when we learn and, and practice history, we're always looking for continuity and change and identifying those patterns over the course of periods of time. And I think what we're able to do and what I see a lot of historians doing is contextualizing the things that are happening right now and showing us um, how we still have a long way to go that those victories that we claimed you know, 50 and 60 years ago were only partial victories, that there's still a lot of people who are, when it comes to voting rights, who are still disfranchised or that there have been workarounds to the Voting Rights Act or that the Voting Rights Act has been completely gutted as it was four years ago. And so that now we have to have new initiatives um to kind of think through how to expand democracy for people and i think that you know historians are the the perfect people to uh identify trends from the past and then point us in new directions um for the future and i think you know there it's a really great moment for historians i see so many awesome historians on tv these days as public intellectuals but i think to to encourage and inspire people. You don't have to be a public intellectual. You don't have to be, you know, have a Twitter account with, you know, a million followers. You can be in the classroom teaching virtually or in person, however it's gonna happen with students, doing community work, doing community talks, engaging with public historians, engaging with your family. I think the way in which we kind of contextualize for people is a part of our job um and the way in which we inspire people through through our work and encourage people and encourage our students that that is what we we do on a daily basis and so i think kind of contextualizing historicizing where you are you know you don't necessarily have to do anything differently um but really giving people a sense of like how we got here um is really important work. And I think encouraging students and using that history to encourage students that we all have individual power and that that we can make choices that can change
0: our future. Pamela Walker, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, thank you so much. This is my pleasure. This is the Rutgers Oral History Archives podcast. I'm your host, Kate Rizzi. The Rutgers Oral History Archives is an affiliated center in the Department of History in the School of Arts and Sciences at Rutgers University. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts at, at sign RU Oral History. The Roha website can be found at oralhistory.ruckers.edu. This podcast has been edited and produced by Kate Rizzi.